The city of Jacksonville does not have their own Major League Baseball team, but they have been the home to loads of minor league baseball teams over the last century and a half. Baseball was far away from the heights that it has in popularity today, but in the small leagues drifting around the country at the end of the 19th century, legends were being made. Florida, long before it became the home to two teams and the yearly spring training games, had its own unique communities of baseball players, and Jacksonville was one such town. 1920 was the first year of the official Negro National League, where segregated teams of black baseball players would compete against one another. Nearly 40 years before that, however, other leagues had started up to allow black baseball players to play. The very first, the very first, was called the Southern League of Colored Baseballists. They only played for one single year in 1886, and only for a few months, but it was enough to make an impact. Games started up in May of that year in, quote, Memphis, Atlanta, Charleston, Savannah, Montgomery, and Jacksonville, end quote. Jacksonville actually was the hub of the league, and therefore hosted three separate teams, the Athletics of Jacksonville, the Florida Clippers of Jacksonville, and the Macedonias of Jacksonville. It's not confirmed who wound up winning the league in their one and only year of play, but it's believed that it was one of the Memphis teams. Jacksonville fell short. Jacksonville technically launched the beginning of spring training in Florida when the city hosted the Washington Statesman in 1888. Major players were coming to Jacksonville that far back to get ready for their season. It put the city well and truly on the map for baseball, so the minor leagues quickly followed in turn. In 1904, the Jacksonville Jays were born and began playing in the Southern Atlantic League, which was often called the Sally League. It was a minor baseball league that still exists to this day. They played their games in Dixieland Park, which is a story I've got to tell you another time. It's a wonderful story in and of itself. It was kind of the Florida version of Coney Island back in the day, and at Dixieland Park, they had a baseball stadium. According to the Minor League Baseball website, quote, at the time, there were no bridges in Jacksonville, so fans would have to ride ferries across the St. John's River to attend a game at Dixieland Park, end quote. But Jacksonville couldn't quite settle on a good name. They won the Sally League as the Jays in 1908, then as the Tarpons in 1912, and then changed their name again in 1917 to the Jacksonville Roses. Then they were the Scouts, the Indians, and the Tars throughout the 20s. The official Negro American League returned to Jacksonville with the Red Caps playing off and on in the pre-war years. After the war, however, a big change was on the horizon, and it was in the form of a man named Samuel W. Wolfson. Wolfson had big dreams for Jacksonville baseball. After the Second World War was over, Wolfson purchased the Jacksonville Tars and renamed them the Jacksonville Braves after they became affiliated with the major league team, the Boston Braves. The Sally League remained segregated until the Jacksonville Braves broke the color barrier by playing one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Hank Aaron. Hank wasn't even 20, and he was already making history at the beginning of a lifetime of history making. Hank, who was affectionately called the Hammer, would move on to the majors the following year. A new park was opened the year after that in 1955, called Wolfson Park after the man who brought the team to life and led them to their championship in 1956. 
but the years after flagged, and as the 60s came around, the Jacksonville team, now called the Jets, played their last season. In 1961, after years of work, the Jacksonville minor league baseball team was over. But it was not the end of minor league baseball in Jacksonville, not even close. The following year, a new minor league franchise would make their move to Jacksonville. How they got there, however, is very unusual. That team began in Havana, Cuba. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. It's the end of the dog days of summer, which means the playoffs are creeping up on the teams of Major League Baseball. With the World Series looming on the horizon, I thought now would be a good time to tell you about an incredible piece of Florida history and baseball history, the short-lived yet sensational minor league baseball team, the Havana Sugar Kings. Before we get into that, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. I've been sponsored by A Trombo Creative this entire season, and if you haven't at least gone to check out her Instagram, you have got to do it. Annie makes endlessly entertaining stuff, and the kind of stuff that always inspires me when I am feeling low creatively. She is an endlessly passionate person and a wonderful person to work with. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode. Go to the links in the episode description. Go check out her Instagram. Annie does some incredible work. All right, on to the story this week. If you've listened to any of my baseball episodes before, and I've done a few, you know that I'm a lifelong New York Yankees fan. I always have been. I always will be. We're not going to debate it. But I love all of baseball. I love the game at its core. And I have a lot of love for plenty of non-Yankees as well. But... As you know, I am also a theater kid through and through, and one of my favorite things in all of professional sports is the uniform. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I love baseball uniforms. Why they chose the colors that they're wearing, how they evolved through the years, what the logo is, even the mascot. All of it fascinates me. So, I was naturally intrigued when the Yankees played the Miami Marlins in the last weekend of July. The Yankees swept the series, thank you very much, playing three amazing games in the Marlins' home stadium in Little Havana, Miami. The Yankees were in their usual gray away uniforms, but the Marlins weren't wearing their usual slick white jersey with black lettering and pink-blue accents. Rather, they were wearing a bright red jersey with white pinstripes and a baby blue hat with a red bill. The logo on the front of the cap didn't resemble their usual logo at all. It wasn't the M with the Marlin on top. It was a crown. What were these uniforms and where did they come from? They're actually part of a project that Nike is running in both the NBA and the MLB. The City Edition jerseys for the basketball teams have been around for a few years now and some are better than others. 
obviously I have a preference for the Florida teams. The Orlando Magic jerseys are white with orange pinstripes, the logo in a soft orange color to honor our citrus industry history. The Miami Heat jerseys are pink and blue a la Miami Vice. They are really meant to reflect the city where the teams are based, not just honoring the team, but also honoring the culture of where the teams play, to honor the community around the teams. They were popular enough that baseball is running this same project, slowly introducing these city jerseys for all the major teams. Seven have been introduced now, and some, again, are better than others. The San Francisco Giants uniform is orange and white, but a little less successful than the Orlando Magic jerseys. Maybe I'm biased as a Yankees fan, but the Boston Red Sox jerseys are odd as well. They're yellow and blue to honor the Boston Marathon. They're kind of an iconically red team, so yellow clashes a little, but it's still nice. The Chicago White Sox have my second favorite of the uniforms. It's black with white pinstripes, and it says Southside in a gothic font. It looks great. But the Miami Marlins jersey is the one that really stepped up. On first glance, they're a little bright, a little intense, but once you learn the story of why they are wearing those uniforms, well, it brings the whole look together. In the years after the Second World War, when baseball was reaching new heights of popularity as Americans attempted to return to normal, lots of teams were popping up all over the country. Baseball was also becoming the international favorite that it is today. Nowadays, baseball is extremely popular, not just in the United States, but also in the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Baseball is popular throughout South America, and it's so popular in Japan that they won gold in both baseball and softball in the Tokyo Olympics earlier this month. The Japanese baseball and softball teams are the best. But in the 40s, this community was still growing. A team sprang up in Cuba in 1946 as a minor league training ground. To this day, baseball teams have minor league affiliates where they have rookies train and play and keep a sort of rotating pool of players that they can pull when they need them. The team in Cuba was called the Havana Cubans, and they were connected to the Washington Senators. They were successful in their years together, but in 1954, the team became majority owned by a man named Bobby Maduro. After that move, they were renamed the Havana Sugar Kings, a much better name. And they were playing against other minor league teams based in Florida, in the Florida International League. My guest this week actually saw the Havana Sugar Kings in person, kind of. Okay, well first let me tell you my interest in the Havana Sugar Kings. My connection was the Havana Sugar Kings, after Castro took over in Cuba, decided the, the league, the International League, decided they probably better move them out of Havana. And they moved them to Jersey City, my hometown. So I actually saw the Jersey City jerseys after they were the Havana Sugar Kings. That is John Burbridge. Okay, I'm John Burbridge. And I'm retired now, but I've been mainly an educator throughout my life. I've taught at a lot of different schools, Lehigh, Rutgers, Pace, uh, Loyola, Maryland, and Elon University. And then recently I was an adjunct at York College. I asked him how he became interested in baseball. Everyone has a good story for that. Okay, very simply, my father was a big Giants fan. My uncles were Giants fans. And at the age of six or seven, I was a Giants fan. 
<laughs> so that's how I became interested in baseball. When I was 16, the Giants left New York. Uh, but I still wrote it for the Giants out in San Francisco because of Willie Mays. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't abandon Willie Mays. In the 70s, John tells me, he started working with an organization called the Society of American Baseball Research, or SABRE. He's presented many times at their meetings, including one presentation where he and his co-author, John Harris, shared their research on the Sugar Kings. Naturally, it was an attractive story to tell, so I gave John a call. Bobby Maduro, who became the majority owner of the Sugar Kings in 53-54, was born in Havana in 1916. Bobby was born to wealth, got his college education in the United States, and came home where he was eventually married. It's possible that Bobby was involved in the Havana Cubans when they were formed, but it's not totally clear. Nevertheless, he was involved with them as the years went on before he purchased them proper. He helped them build their gorgeous stadium in Havana. In an article in Sabre, it is said that Bobby Maduro became the majority owner of the Havana Cubans on May 4th, 1953. A little over two months later, at the end of July, the Cuban Revolution, led by Fidel Castro, began their assault on their federal government to oust Cuban President Fulgencio Batista. On July 26th, rebels launched an assault on military barracks only to be pushed back by government forces. Though their first attack was a failure, it launched a spark on the island that would carry through the decades. Despite all the change happening on the island, the future was bright for the Havana Sugar Kings. They didn't know that at the time, however. Throughout the 40s, the Sugar Kings, before they became the Sugar Kings, were dominant, winning the titles in the Florida minor league competitions. From 46 to 50, they won the Florida International League Championship. All throughout those years, 46 to 50, that's a lot of wins. But things had fallen away since the beginning of the 50s. Their last year as the Havana Cubans, they had to start their season at their island neighbor to the north. West. In 1954, however, Maduro helped move the Sugar Kings into a new position. He was able to maneuver that team into the International League in 1954, and the Vanish Sugar Kings became the International League team in 1954. And uh, Maduro was the president of that team. And of course, they weren't very successful in their first few years. Maduro moved the team to the International League, meaning they had gone from one of many minor baseball leagues and rocketed up to the league directly below the actual major leagues. They had a chance to be big and maybe even be a major league team themselves. Until then, they were affiliated with the Cincinnati Redlegs, which is actually the real name of the Cincinnati Reds. Maduro was facing a problem, however, that couldn't be solved by good business skills. His team wasn't very good. They floundered throughout the 56, 57, and 58 seasons. On top of that, the team used to play in the winter, but now they were playing in the summer months to coordinate with the major leagues, which led to even lower attendance as summers in the Cuban climate were brutal. Maduro was facing down a tough situation, a flagging team, dwindling attendance, and a revolution about to reach its zenith. But um, Castro came into power in 1959, and of course that was created some uncertainty for the Havana Sugar King. As I remember it, it wasn't sure whether Castro was going to go totally with Russia or maybe become an ally of the United States in that 1959 period. So there was still some uncertainty. 
So Maduro apparently got assurances from Castro that the sugar kings will indeed operate in the International League, and he wasn't going to create any problems for Maduro or the sugar kings. So the federal government collapses, leader of the insurgents Fidel Castro becomes the prime minister of Cuba, and the revolution that had lasted for six years comes to an end. We all know what became of America's relationship with Cuba. An embargo was instated between our countries in September of 1961. But at the time, it was looking like there could still be a relationship between the two. The Havana Sugar Kings were quite literally being pulled in two directions, between their home nation and the nation that housed their league and affiliates. But in that exact same year, in 1959, amidst the chaos and change in Cuba, the Havana Sugar Kings were winning. A lot. The team was electric and exciting and roaring their way through competitors. Many of the players on the 59 Sugar Kings would go on to have major league careers. Quote, Tony Gonzalez, Leo Cardenas, and Cookie Rojas. End quote. All three of them, Cuban ball players, would go on to play in the major leagues. Nevertheless, things started to look a little intense. During that year, I believe it was on July 26, which is the anniversary of Castro taking, uh, there was a shooting incident at the stadium. So that created some uncertainty. In fact, uh, uh, one of the um, Rochester Royals got actually nicked in the head. They left. So there were still some problems now. July 26th is the day that the attack on those barracks in 1953 occurred, marking the beginning of the revolution. To celebrate, there was a pair of events held at the Sugar Kings' stadium. One such event was an exhibition game, two innings, wherein Fidel Castro played baseball. There's a two-inning exhibition where Castro actually pitches. Castro was a player. Right. He did play baseball, and he actually pitches in an exhibition game down there. And uh, I'm not sure if some of the batters on the opposing team were might have been a little afraid to get a hit off of Castro. <laughs> Castro's team was called Los Borbudos, which means the bearded ones. Castro indeed pitched, and Camilo Cienfuegos, the head of Castro's armed forces, was the shortstop. The other team was, quote, composed of military police, end quote. It's a completely surreal image. I can hardly even picture it. The photographs of it are unbelievable, frankly. Really, really, really fascinating artifacts from history. Castro just playing baseball at the beginning of his career as prime minister. It's bizarre. And then the next night, the game played late, meaning it became the actual anniversary of July 26th, the beginning of the revolution at midnight. When the clock struck 12, cheers erupted, as well as victorious gunfire. A bullet fell and collided with Frank Verdi, who was the coach for the rival team, the Rochester Red Wings. Luckily, he was wearing a padded hat. On top of that, a shortstop for the Sugar Kings was hit in the shoulder. The sustained physical injuries were minor, but Maduro was now facing an even bigger crisis. The Rochester team fled the island and forfeited their last games. Maduro needed to prove that this team could exist before the American federal government shut it down. Heading into the playoffs, there was uncertainty, not just on the island, but for the team as well. They finished third, an 80-73 and 73 record for the season. They were headed into the playoffs now, and they needed to show up. And show up, they did. 
they roar through round one, destroy the semifinals, and launch themselves comfortably into their final matchup of the season against the Minneapolis Millers. Interesting enough, well, they play Minneapolis, and the Little Oil Series gets played like in October. Well, it's about 30 degrees in Minneapolis. <laughs> so after the first two games, which hardly anybody ever went to, they moved to Havana. To Havana, so, Cuba. Havana, Cuba. Wow. Well, that's where the Little World Series took. That's where the Valley Sugar Kings. Right. So that's where they played the rest of the Little World Series. I believe Havana goes up three to two. The Minneapolis team, which is led by Carl Yastrzemski. Hall of Famer Carl Yastrzemski is a Boston Red Sox legend, an 18-time All-Star, and one of their most important players of all time. And yeah, he played in Havana against the Sugar Kings. <laughs> Wow. They tied at 3-3. And in the final game, I think there were 35,000 at the Havana Stadium. And the stadium, Maduro, really was the architect, though. 35,000, they come and win uh, with a little late rally. And I think they win the game 3-2. And Castro and all the big wigs in Cuba at that time go crazy and the team goes crazy. And um, so I was very, very happy. All right. If you are listening to this podcast and you don't love baseball, if you don't watch baseball, that's totally fine. But I need to tell you something so that you can understand the way that this game ended. It ended in a walk-off win. Now, a walk-off is a very important thing in baseball. The home team bats in the bottom of the ninth, meaning this is the last chance they have to score and win the game before it goes to extra innings, if it's tied, or if they lose, they don't have enough runs. If they score, the game is over immediately. You won. You went ahead. The game is over. There is nothing, nothing more satisfying than a walk-off win. Every time I see my team win a walk-off, it is the, it's exhilarating. It's the best feeling in the world. Not only did the Sugar Kings win, they won it at home in the final game of the series in the ninth inning on a walk-off win. Can you even imagine? But it was not meant to last. Well, that shooting incident creates some problems. There are some players that are very nervous about playing in Havana. And when Minneapolis plays in that Little World Series in Havana, there's some of their players are very nervous, especially if indeed, uh, I guess they would get nervous whether they won or lose. Um, but if they win, how's Nevada fans going to react to that? Tensions were high. It's not fair to characterize the population of Cuba as violent assailants, but it was on the mind of American ballplayers at the time. They were uncertain about what it meant to play in Cuba. Of course, they lost, and I guess everybody was very happy in Havana. But yeah, Minneapolis teams were a little nervous. The owners were concerned, especially in 1960, and that's why the pressure on Shaughnessy to move them out, even though Castro had given assurances to Maduro that this would work. Frank Shaughnessy was the president of the International League where the Sugar Kings played. Um, now, the interesting thing, and we bring this up at the end of the article, what would have happened if the United States and State Department didn't necessarily put pressure on the International League to pull Havana out? And Havana actually did indeed continue in the International League. Would that have smoothed a little bit the U.S. 
Cuba relationships. We don't know. Now, what John is saying there is this. The Havana Sugar Kings left Havana the very next year, 1960. It occurred to John that perhaps if this divide hadn't occurred, if the baseball executives had allowed the Sugar Kings to keep playing in Havana, would there have been quite so brutal a divide between America and Cuba? It's doubtful. Lots of things go into politics, and baseball certainly isn't one of them. But we don't know. We aren't living in that world. There is literally no way to know, but it's something to consider. Baseball is and always has been a sport that has bridged gaps between countries, between communities. Who's to say it couldn't have resolved an international crisis as well? We don't know. We never will. But the Sugar Kings did indeed leave Havana. And then in 1960, there's still some uncertainty. And now all of a sudden it's obvious Castro is really going to go communist and create an alliance with Russia. So this not the State Department put some pressure on the uh, the International League. Frank Shaughnessy was the president. They put some pressure on Shaughnessy. So um, in the middle of the season, Shaughnessy said, well, that's it. We, the Havana experience. Maduro is trying to salvage the team. And Shona says, no, we got to pull out. And I got this team, I got this city available, Jersey City. So we're going to move the Havana Sugar Kings to Jersey City. And they come to Jersey, Jersey. Maduro goes with them. The Jersey experience is, is a terrible one. Hardly anybody comes out to the game. I went to see a game or two. It was really a flop attendance wise. There's an interesting quote by the manager of the Jersey City team. He sees more life in someone hanging from a noose than the players on his team. So <laughs> <laughs> it's something like that. That's pretty so good. At the end of that season, uh, Jersey City, they decided they got to move him out. And so they moved to Jacksonville. By now, Maduro has lost a lot of money in Cuba. And this whole Jersey City thing has really taxed him. Uh, so he's practically broke. Remember the Jacksonville Jets? Well, they folded in 1961, and in 1962, the newest iteration of the Sugar Kings franchise was now known as the Jacksonville Suns. They would remain in Jacksonville until they moved to Norfolk, Virginia, and became the Norfolk Tides in 1969, where they have remained ever since. So they were the Sugar Kings, then they moved to Jersey City, then they moved to Jacksonville, and then they finally found their final resting place in Norfolk. Jacksonville would start up their own new minor league team in 1970, and that would eventually become my favorite minor league baseball team, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. I don't think I'm alone in saying this. I probably would never have heard of the Sugar Kings if not for the Miami Marlins wearing those uniforms. Is it exciting to see little sort of less talked about parts of baseball history being remembered in that way? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and there's, there's so many little parts of baseball history that it's, it's interesting. In fact, uh, you know, that's, I think, what's important. Baseball can actually act as an avenue to give us a better understanding of history, culture, sports, obviously. There is a lot to be learned in baseball, in its history in how the game was played, how it is still being played, and how both of those things can change the way the game will be played for years to come. 
In the last several years, baseball has been recontextualizing its own history, honoring heroes and stars in new ways. They've included the statistics from the Negro Leagues in the official MLB statistics. They've put teams in classic uniforms to honor the city's histories, and they have honored historic teams with untold stories, like the Sugar Kings. In a time where Cuba is in our conversations as a nation, conversations about the relationship between our two countries, the Miami Marlins wearing that uniform is a statement. It's a statement that our histories are interconnected and that baseball has always been at the crossroads of where we connect. Oh, and one more thing before I go. John mentioned that he is a Giants fan. The San Francisco Giants are having an incredible year, and my Yankees are having a pretty spectacular year themselves. We've had a pretty strong surge to the playoffs, and I'm hoping we remain strong. It's been a lot of fun watching them over the last couple of months. I mentioned this to John, and here's his response. Hopefully, your team and my team will be playing each other in the World Series in a couple That's of months. Right. So hope maybe I'll be in touch when that happens. Hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. That would be that would be pretty fun. And that will be similar to what happened in 1921, 22, and 23. Giants, is... the Yankees in the World Series, you know, and then a couple times in the 30s, and then 1951 too, and 62. Oh yeah, that's a hey, it was a lot of the belt. You had all those numbers ready to go. So there it is. I promise, if that is the final matchup, I will give John a call and you will hear us talk about baseball very soon. Until then, go Yankees. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. Any chance I get to talk about baseball, I take it. If you're brand new to the show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. If you just came to hear some more baseball stories, I have good news. There are plenty of baseball stories. We have talked about spring training. We have talked about Jackie Robinson, who actually broke the color barrier in the minor leagues right before he broke it in the major leagues. If you want to hear about either of those stories and more, I've included those in the episode description. I love baseball. I can't help myself. I'd recommend listening to those episodes. You'll really enjoy them. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. Seriously, if you haven't gone to her Instagram, go to it right now. Do it. Looking for more Wait 5 Minutes? Well, there is a website just for you. Go to wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. It's been a busy couple of weeks, so I'm a little behind on the website, but I'm hoping to get a bunch of photographs, transcripts, and additional content to that website very soon, or maybe even between the season breaks. I will be letting you know about that, but until then, listen to some past episodes at wfmpod.com. You can also now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using photography from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle About Florida by a Floridian in a vintage citrus style. Grab those stickers individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. 
If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I really love hearing from you, and especially because I'm looking for some big episodes to start off 2022. I know we're a couple months away, but I've got some great stories on the lineup for the rest of this year. If there's something you want to hear next year, let me know. I'd love to hear it. I'd like to give a very special thank you to John Burbridge, along with his co-author on the paper he wrote, John Harris. John Burbridge also has a few things that you should check out. Check out Sabre, and um, there are two things. There's the article that we wrote about the Vanna Sugar Kings, but the other thing is there's a uh, there's a bio on that site uh, by Rory Costello about Bobby Maduro, because Bobby Maduro is really the, the, the figure that pulled this whole thing together. There's links to all that in the episode description. Next week is a weird one, a fun one, but we're approaching the finale and I wanted to tell you about a strange story that I've been kind of fascinated with for a long time, long before I even started writing the show, and I feel like I'm always coming back to it, about how Florida has tried to become Hollywood East, tried to make itself the state for filmmaking on the East Coast the way that California is for the West, and all the times they've tried, and all the times they've failed, and especially one in particular, a town called Picture City. You're going to have to hear it to believe it. We are two episodes away from the end of this season, and our finale is a big historical breakdown of a fascinating part of the origins of Disney World. So tune into the next two episodes to the end of this season. It's been a really wonderful summer. Thank you for listening. I will see you next Monday. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Please look into getting vaccinated if you haven't already. We need you now more than ever. And please drink more water. It's hot out there. Drink more water. All right. I'll see you next Monday. Take care of yourself.